When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the things I do when I go into a workplace is teach people a shared emotional vocabulary and a shared understanding of what emotions mean so that it's no longer a secret shame to have a human emotion. (laughs) That was Carla McLaren on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of ACT Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the upcoming book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of ACT Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We're proud to be sponsored by Praxis, the premier provider of continuing education training for mental health professionals. Right now, Praxis is offering both virtual and in-person trainings. And for the virtual trainings, they have both live and on-demand courses. Praxis is our go-to for evidence-based CE trainings, and they're especially known for their ACT trainings. Some of the best expert peer-reviewed ACT trainers offer courses with Praxis. Check out their current offerings at praxiscet.com, or you can link to them through our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you can get a discount on live training events if you use the code OFFTHECLOCK. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, everyone. Today's episode is with Carla McLaren on the power of emotions at work. And I'm here with Yael to introduce the episode. This is a fun one for me because 
I have been drawing a lot from this particular book that Carla wrote, The Power of Emotions at Work, Accessing the Vital Intelligence in Your Workplace. And when you've been reading a book and drawing from it, and then you get the chance to interview the author, and it's something you're passionate about, it's a really fun perk of being a podcast co-host. So Yael, you listened to the episode. Do you have any thoughts you want to share? <laughs> well, I, I shared this with you via text, but I just loved listening to you fangirl out with her. It was so clear that you're really such a, um, that you love her work and that you were really excited to to talk with her. And that is, I mean, for all those out there who get geeked out over books, podcasting is a really great way to meet your, <laughs> your superstars. <laughs> That's I right. I recommend that. Um, I mean, the whole topic just, I, I was I, like, keep thinking like emotions at work, you're going to have them. <laughs> like there's no avoiding it. And I think she makes such a good point in her work of how the work structures that many of us have implicitly or explicitly really discourage you from sharing them, you know, participating too deeply in them, and yet we can't avoid it. And in fact, you know, emotions are so useful. And I often think about emotions sort of in the context of uh, the way that dialectical behavior therapy, one of these evidence-based treatment models, thinks about it is that, you know, our reasonable logical mind is really good. And our emotional mind, like where we um, you know, feel our way through things and use emotions as a way to gather a certain kind of information that can't be accessed through logic is really important. And really, it's the sharing of the two, being able to integrate our reasonable mind and our emotional mind that is so useful. And I think it seems to me, and I, you know, I'm sort of like applying a model from therapy onto her work, but it seems to me that that's really what she's doing is she's not saying, you know, it's only about emotions, but it's really about making space for this other part of ourselves and really welcoming it in, in like a open way so that we can build work lives that are not only more humane, but like more productive, more sustainable, more creative, more connected. And in that way, you know, bringing emotions into the workplace isn't like a, it's not a burden for our workplaces to, car to carry. It's actually a gift to them. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons I am so passionate about work is that we spend so much of our lives in the workplace that it's really important, I think, to look at it in that way that you're talking about, that we bring ourselves into our work. We spend, I mean, if you work full time, think of what a chunk of your life each week you're spending at work. And to be able to fully bring our emotional selves in there, in addition to just our you know, our rational selves, it's more humane. And I think as I continue to do more work in this particular area, you know, I'm doing a lot of work on burnout. I'm writing a book on burnout right now. I think that it just becomes more and more clear to me how much this is really a cultural issue and has to be addressed as a cultural issue, because there's something really harmful, I think, that what happens when the workplace environment isn't humane toward people in all their emotions and their mistakes and their humanness. And I think we've seen that. We've seen over the last few years how important that is and how when that's not available to us, it takes a toll. And she, you know, she kind of jokes that she has her, her capitalism spiel in the conversation, you know, and it's 
funny because I just recently started reading this book by a British author, James Davies. It's called Sedated, How Modern Capitalism Created Our Mental Health Crisis. So it's quite a, it's quite a um, provocative read, you know. Um, But one of the things in this book is about how part of why we suffer is because sometimes we are almost treated as like productive machines. And it becomes all about like, how can we get the most productivity out of people? And there's a quote in the intro to the book. So I'm not very far into it. I I just got it. So if I had read the whole thing, I might have more to say about this. Um, But that we, so here's the quote, we define return to health as return to work. And it's like, I don't know. I think there's something about that feeling that we're meant to just be resilient and economically productive and kind of show up in this positive, productive way that's like adding to the problem here. And so I just love that Carla looks at the social and cultural components of this and is out there doing work where she's trying to change this. She's trying to make the workplace better for people where people can thrive. And it's not just good for the individuals. It's literally better for the workplace culture. So everybody benefits. Absolutely. And what I think is so cool is that it's so timely, right? There's this movement afoot that has variously been called the great quit, the great resignation. And now I think it's more commonly called the great reshuffle, right? There's this opportunity and this pressure that the work landscape is having to to really rearrange itself. And, and there's you know lots of opportunities because technology has allowed for more remote work and flexibility. And there's opportunities for workers to say, no, I'm not going to stay because now there's um, a shortage in the labor force. And so workers are kind of empowered to say, you know, there are other options for me. I don't have to stay in this toxic environment. And of course, that's not true across the board. And many people are, you know, somewhat trapped in their work lives. So I don't mean to um, diminish the challenges that many, many people are facing. But I think at a broader cultural level, we're having this conversation and this episode is is coming out at a, at a really timely moment in our history where things seem to be shifting and we're able to start talking about these things and and give voice to something that has been missing for many people for, from like entire professional worlds. And Debbie, I actually just yesterday talked with our joint friend, Alex Pong, who's written a couple of terrific books and we've had him on to talk about his book, Rest, and his other, his more recent book, Shorter. And he's participating in really leading the way in helping countries and and corporations shorten the work week. And in part, in in large part, it's because it's more humane and better for many organizations' bottom lines. And so there's really such huge opportunity. And I'm so glad that you had this conversation and that that your book is really going to be talking more about you know, how we can change the way that people engage in their work lives. Yeah. And that's really, I think my passion behind this is around whether people need to make a change, you know, change to a different environment or, or look at some of these big cultural systemic changes, or just reconnect with more meaning in their day-to-day experience, even if they can't or don't want to make a change, is that the work part of our lives that so many of us are so invested in, but that that can be a place of meaning and fulfillment in life. Ideally, I know that no job is perfect and that that's not always really happening. Sometimes you just need a paycheck, but at least if it can be something that is, you know, kind of a a positive experience for people and not one that's just going to be adding so much suffering to people's lives. So 
On that note, we hope that you enjoy the conversation with Carla. Carla McLaren is an award-winning author, social science researcher, and educator. She's the author of several books, including The Power of Emotions at Work, Embracing Anxiety, The Art of Empathy, The Language of Emotions, and a multimedia online course called Emotional Flow, Becoming Fluent in the Language of Emotions. She has won several honors and awards, including the 2010 Gold Medal from the Independent Publisher Book Awards. Carla has taught at such venues as the University of San Francisco, Esalen, Bioneers, Naropa University, Kripalu Center, and the Association for Humanistic Psychology. She's also a certified human resource administrator and certified career development facilitator with a master's degree in education, and she lives in Sonoma County, California. Carla, mm-hmm. welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Debbie. I'm happy to be here. I'm going to just tell you something really quickly, which is that I read your book actually a while ago, I think, I don't know, maybe six months to a year ago or something. And I've been quoting it when I give talks or in some things <laughs> I've been quoting you. So it's really fun to meet you. Um, and you're I always credit you. Don't worry. Um, but there's a few parts of your, I'm so excited to talk to you about the power of emotions at work, because there are a few parts of it that just really capture, I think, something that's going on in our world right now. So it's really fun mm-hmm. to meet the person behind the quote today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to read you the quote. And I, I think that's going to dive us into um, kind of getting this started here. It's actually, I've kind of hobbled together a a couple of quotes from your first chapter, to be honest. Okay. Here it goes. Most of us have been fed the absurd idea that the workplace is a rare setting where emotions are unwelcome, illogical, unprofitable, or even unprofessional. We fooled ourselves into believing that emotions had no value at work and kicked the emotions out of our factories, our offices, our workplaces, our boardrooms, and our working lives. And in doing so, we created an inhuman and emotionally unlivable environment that doesn't truly work for anyone. So, (laughs) yes, true and so powerful to read those words. I think that's why I I keep going back to them um, Mm -hmm. from your book. And so tell us about that. I mean, I think that what this is capturing is that there are some real problems in the modern workplace environment Can you tell us what you have seen in your work in this area? Well, I think the great resignation is telling us a lot of things. What so many people starting uh, last year, 2021, but even going through today, people are just leaving their jobs. They've had it. They've had it. And a lot of places are saying, well, we need to pay them more. And yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good. But we've all been in jobs where we got enough money, but the job itself was not functional. It wasn't livable. And there were all kinds of secrets. Uh, Many workplaces are like unhealthy families, you know, where you can't talk, you can't speak the truth about what these people are doing because that will stop the process. And then there's a lot of, you know, hidden conversations and someone says they're in charge, but actually it's this other person who has the power. And so nobody can actually say anything. And it reminds me, many workplaces remind me of being a young child in an unhealthy family where you can see what's going on, but you have no way to speak to it. And a lot of times adults just get sick of that. 
they get sick of it. And it doesn't matter how much they're being paid. It doesn't matter. Uh, well, it does matter what their medical, you know, what their medical and dental insurance are. But they they will often say to themselves, it's got to be better than this. There's got to be some place that's better than this. Um, and hopefully they find that place. I mean, there are some healthy workplaces, but they are, tend to be few and far between. Do you think that this is, we're both in the United States. Do you think mm -hmm. this is happening mostly here in the U.S. or in other places around the world too? I don't know if you can speak to that, but I'm just sort of curious because it seems especially research. bad here. Yeah, it yeah. is especially bad here, but I did research on uh, multi, you know, like uh, multinational research and the workplace is tending to be a bad place for almost everyone. America, uh, United States of America is particularly bad, though, because our labor laws are pretty much non-existent. We have very, very poor worker protections here, even though we have OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and Hazard. We have the Labor Board. We have all sorts of things to supposedly protect workers, but we still don't have a paid family leave. We don't have um, uh, reasonable um, leave for if you're ill, you, you know, you can go, but they're not going to pay you, right? So you have to lose your working, um, your income if you need to take extensive time off of work. Um, yeah, we are uh, for a supposedly developed country. We have some of the worst worker protections in the world. So there's that. Yeah, that's, that doesn't help that yeah. some of those, you know, policies certainly contribute to it as well. Yeah. Do you, you know, that idea that in the quote I just read to you about how we've come to believe that it's almost like emotions, there's no place for them, yes. you know, like you said, it's kind of like an emotionally invalidating family yes. life, like stop crying right now. Are there cultural factors? Do you think that why have we come to believe that about emotions at work? I mean, I have a, a number of answers, and some are more anarchist than others. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, one thing is that if people don't have access to their emotions, they're easier to control. Um, if they don't, have, because emotions are not the opposite of rationality, they are the things that tell us what the value of the data we are taking in is, whether it's important or unimportant. And so if people don't have access to their emotions, they are essentially kind of knocked down a few steps in the cognition and intelligence level, certainly social intelligence, but also intelligence about their job. People who have less power are easier to control. Mm -hmm. uh, that's basically, there's also um, a bit of, hidden or not so hidden sexism in it, uh, misogyny, that emotions and empathy are generally thought to be the purview of f female, female appearing people. And so that would, um, you know, it, 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 in my lifetime, it was unusual for women to be working outside the home, right? When I grew up in the 60s and 70s, you didn't know a lot of working moms, at least not in my working class, you know, lower middle class neighborhood. So 
the idea that women were going to go into the workplace was not very much a reality. And so the idea, which is incorrect, which is that the workplace is for men and men are rational and they don't feel as many emotions as women. We know that's not true, but that has still maintained that has been maintained in the workplace to a great extent. And men are not doing any better in the workplace than women are, right? They, they did not join in the great resignation. Men did join in the great resignation. So it's not as if this artificially emotionless place is healthy for anyone. Um, we know that now, but the workplace is just sort of, it, it likes to be slow, it likes to mm. likes to hold on to tradition, even if it's a terrible tradition. So those sort of sexist, misogynistic roots are still have a hold on us. You know, yeah, I mean, you and, can say that, hear that in regular conversations. People say, "Well, we can't talk until you stop being emotional, right?" Or "Don't yeah. be emotional, be rational," as if they are opposite things. So that's very much still a belief system, sort of everywhere. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's very pervasive. And it's yeah. interesting you mentioned gender because I often talk to my clients about gender-based messages and expectations yeah. around emotional expressions. I'm a clinical yeah. psychologist. And yeah. I mean, I think that that's a lot of times when people are struggling with their emotional experience, you know, there's mm -hmm. deep roots to that. And it often comes down to those messages they learned along the way. Um, yes. When you think about the workplace and just the way it is now, um, do you think there are differences in how men and women are sort of, quote, allowed to express their emotions in the workplace? I mean, generally speaking, obviously, it's not the same in every single workplace environment. But I'm curious about your experience about that. I would say it, it's definitely um, uh, individual to the work. Each, each workplace is individual. But I do notice that there's a lot of... Um, happy peppy energy being thrown at the workplace and making your, uh, it used to be called productivity and now it's engagement. So you want your workers to be engaged, which means you want them to be happy, which means they like that emotion, <laughs> but <laughs> that one's okay. Other, yeah. That one's okay. Because one of the things about happiness is it goes along with the status quo. Happiness isn't an emotion you have when things need to be changed. When things are, when there's problems, you will have other emotions come up to try to tell you that, like anger and anxiety. And so it's interesting that the workplace is still engaged in that controlling of people by asking them only to have happiness, which will not challenge the status quo. And if you want a strong workplace that's going to be able to flow with changes, you need people to have access to all of their emotions, not just happiness. And we have a word. I, I think it comes from psychology, a toxic positivity bias. You know, we have this phrase that too much positivity can teach people to leap over obvious problems because they're just supposed to be happy, right? So there's a lot of workplaces now. One one uh, manager told me that one of her rules is that don't bring me a problem unless you've got a solution. And I just laughed and I went, why would I, if I had a solution, why would I even come to you? I would fix it myself. So basically she, she thought that was a really, you know, good form of management to stop people from grousing at her. But what she was doing was silencing everyone. 
So I've got a problem. I have no solution. I also have no one to go to. Mm. Uh, So there's all kinds of those weird little rules that people pick up in management books in workplaces. And I go, where did you get that from? (laughs) That's just weird. (laughs) But it, it's again, you know, we're here to work. We're not here to have emotions. I was like, well, that's not how human nature functions. So why is the workplace still trying to not have humans in it? Right. Let's just make it robots. We're looking for robots with only, you know, (laughs) as they say, good vibes only that only express the enthusiasm and the positivity, but nothing else. And it's, it's not how, you know, we spend so many hours, most of us, you know, at work and we put heart and soul into it and we have relationships there. And how could you possibly, right? I mean, that toxic positivity bias, Bias, I think the word toxic is pretty important there. Yeah, it's very important. (laughs) Because, you know, there are times when, for instance, grief, this grief is something that many workplaces won't allow. So someone will actually die or leave, you know, forever. And there won't be any kind of a grief ritual. There won't be any kind of a, this happened to us and we lost this person, either because they moved to another, you know, country or because they actually died or they went on an extended sick leave. And it's sort of as if, well, they're gone, you know, and if that was in a family, you would be, this is a seriously dysfunctional family, right? This family is not doing well. Um, Yeah. But it's normal in workplaces to not notice those those losses to, you know, human relationships. Do you know, I used to work in a medical setting. I was a psychologist on a medical team and we mm-hmm. worked with chronic health conditions and people with disabilities. And we worked with patients with ALS and mm. the nurse, um, nurse practitioner cared deeply about these patients. And she kept, we had this period of time where we had several patient deaths happen and she would send the email, you know, to let people know. And I responded and said, wow, you know, that's, that's a lot lately. Um, How are you doing? And she told me that I was the first person who had checked in with her about that, because I think it was just kind of like, well, this is part of the job. This is what we're here to do. It happens. Move on. It's like, well, we get attached, you know, we get attached to people. We need to make room for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think in the healthcare workplace, it's this no emotion rule is even more difficult because healthcare, as you know, is a very high empathy demand work. It's very high, which means your emotional, your capacity for emotional engagement with people is also very high. And you see so much burnout in healthcare because there's still that sort of overarching workplace idea that emotions belong at home and you're at work now, you know, man up or whatever it is. (laughs) Right. Um, Put it in your pocket and go see the next patient or keep going. Yeah. And, and I also think, you know, one of the things I do when I go in and consult is I just, I go and I watch the emotional and empathic um, activity and engagement that's being expected of the people. So for instance, with a nurse, it would be a hundred with an engineer. It might be 20, you know, I'm talking about percentages with a customer service rep, you know, someone who's taking the calls be a hundred 
and 9,000, you know, <laughs> and then I look at in terms of the, the intensity of their emotional and empathic engagement, what is the intensity of the support they are receiving? And usually it's zero. There's kind of no awareness that if I am on the phone with a really intense customer who's just going off, I don't have any mechanism through which to say that was a lot of emotion work I just did then to not blow up. Okay. So I need to walk or I need to go have some water. There's no mechanism for a person to say that was emotional labor that I did. And it was difficult emotional labor and yay me. But usually what happens is, Hey, good job. Get on the other line. Cause now there's another customer and same with nurses going from difficult patient to difficult patient. And there's no transition that is, that is, that is built into the workplace, you know, the healthcare workplace to say that was intense engagement with a human being in pain and your emotional empathic muscles were working extra hard. So where's your break in between those patients? And the answer, you know, it's crickets. I get, I ask that question all the time. And the answer is, uh, um, and you, you realize it never occurred to them again. And I think there, there is some sexism there. I think that's women's work. Women are supposed to have that emotional empathic sort of like it, it, it comes out of them unbidden instead of, no, this is work, right? This is work. Taking care of grandpa is work, okay? <laughs> Absolutely, it's work. It's hard work. Yeah. I love that you gave that some of these examples, I think, of it might be a little bit invisible, right? So the customer service person on the phone who's dealing with irate people, yeah. you know, the, the caregiver caring for grandpa. I mean, people aren't maybe even thinking about that as emotional labor, and clearly, there's a huge emotional demand in those kinds of roles. How can we make that more visible? Or what should we be on the lookout for so that we can start to notice it more and pay attention to it more? In The Power of Emotions at Work, I talk about the difference between emotional labor, which is anything you do to manage your emotions or the emotions of another person in the context of your job. And emotion work. Now, that is a concept from sociologist Arlie Hochschild. She's brilliant. She also has another um, concept called emotion work, which is anything we do in our lives that is not actually being paid for. So going home and making food and taking care of the kids and they're squabbling and, you know, you help them manage their emotions and understand that's emotion work. For people to understand emotional labor and emotion work as work is a huge thing to be able to reframe and then begin to identify. One of the things that I work with is, with people is understand how much you're doing and whether it's nourishing or draining. So I can do emotion work at home with my husband and we have a very, very close relationship and it's like a constant back and forth with emotions and empathy. It's very nourishing. And then when my mother was alive and I was taking care of her as she died, there was some nourishment there, but it's just so hard to be present when someone's dying. Right? So there was, I needed a lot of 
the nourishing people around me at that time so that I could continue to work with my mother as she died, right? But a lot of people have no concept that there's an, even an idea of how much do I do and is it nourishing or draining? I like for people to have a balance between nourishment and drain. People very, very rarely do. So it is mm-hmm. normal for people to sort of burn out. Just, I, I gave it the office. You kids go fight it out yourselves. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like mom is uh, not on the clock right now. Just go. Um, so I think uh, being able to have the words for it, being able to have those concepts and be able to start doing some math, you know, how much is draining and how much is nourishing? Who is feeding me? Who's helping me do this work? I'm sort of laughing here, almost like laughing in a kind of sad way, because just yesterday I had a busy day at work, you know, as a therapist and my kids were both home because one of them was sick and so we didn't have any childcare. And so at the end of the day, I was quite grouchy. I was told, (laughs) I didn't even really realize it, but I was informed that I was rather grouchy. And all of a sudden I was like, listen, I haven't had any time to just unwind today. None. And then it was kind of moved straight into dinner and that kind of thing. And I just, I think that happens a lot of times. It's like you're sort of emotionally engaged throughout the day and there isn't really that respite. There's no chance to have that more filling kind of moment. And then, you know, it takes a toll. Absolutely. Yeah. In our busy lives. And one of the things I look for in the workplace is are there transitional spaces Are there thresholds between this job and that job, this patient and that patient? Are there places where people's sort of empathic and emotional systems get to settle for a minute, shake it off, then go do the next thing? Usually, no, people are running, you know, Mm -hmm. their entire eight hour and then they run home and then they manage with the family. Right. And this tends to be, women's work but of course men are doing it just as much they just don't have they have I think even less support for it because men are not supposed to be emotional or empathic which is silly that's that's silly but um it's you know it's the idea it's the overarching idea so I think for women though to begin to ask for those thresholds and that downtime from doing emotional and empathic labor would feel like I think there would be a lot of shame attached to it because you're so, my mom never asked for time. Do you know what I mean? There's like all this. Mm-hmm. My grandma never asked for time off. This is what women do, right? This is our job. And if it's our job, I want us to get paid for it and have, <laughs> and have appropriate right. break time. Okay. When I go into workplaces, I call myself the emotion work OSHA, which is the occupational safety and hazard um, OSHA administration. So just to see how much emotional labor is happening here and how much support do you have for it? Well, and I want to ask you later on in the conversation about some recommendations you have at the system level, because I think that you have you offer in your book some very helpful, concrete strategies for that. I'm wondering first, though, so you mentioned burnout a couple of times, and Mm -hmm. I have an interest in burnout. I do a lot of work in the area of burnout Mm -hmm. myself, but I'm just wondering more generally if you could just talk a little bit about burnout and other types of emotional toll that it takes on people when they are in a 
workplace environment that has some of these kinds of problems you're talking about? I was very interested in, in the difference, and I can't remember where I read it, but there's a difference between empathic fatigue or emotional fatigue. Just at the end of the day, whew, I've had it. I just need to go watch some shows. You know, I need to have some dinner mm-hmm. and watch some shows, get into someone else's story for a while. Um, and empathic burnout, which is much more serious and it often involves depression and anxiety. Depression is the, the emotion that tells us, hey, something's wrong and we're taking your, emo- your energy away because you, you need to stop moving forward. This is not working. This is situational depression. And anxiety, which is an emotion that helps us get our work done and plan for the future. Both depression and anxiety may come up during uh, empathic burnout. If I see a workplace and I'm called in and there's empathic burnout, I know that this, the, the issue is very, very serious. People are moving into depression and sometimes into s- the suicidal urge, which is an emotion that comes up when uh, things need to stop now and it's not funny anymore. And a lot of times people will turn that toward themselves and think, my life needs to stop. And in, in my work, we, we turn the we turn the suicidal urge out and ask, what needs to end? Not you. Your body's off the table. What needs to end? And when with that reframing, people can say, oh, my job is a hellhole, you know, instead of I'm trapped. Um, so when that emotion comes up, I know that, you know, massive change is about to happen. Uh, or there's something that's so unlivable that it needs to be identified right now. But empathic fatigue or empathy fatigue may be a sign of you and me kind of not managing our workload. Like we're maybe we're just not exercising, we're not eating well, something's going on. It could be something we're doing. With empathic burnout, it's always the system. Mm. Empathic burnout is a sign of an unhealthy or abusive system. Mm, and yeah, yeah. So, so a lot of people take empathic burnout and think, oh, okay, I failed or I can't do this anymore. I was like, nah, let's look outside you. Right. <laughs> um, your failure is trackable, it's changeable. You can start exercising, you can eat better at lunch so you don't have this big crash at 4 p.m. or so. Do you know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. it's fixable. Empathic burnout is a sign of a sick system. And I think that's hard for people because many of these sick systems are sick because they don't take input, right? They, they don't see it, they refuse to see what's happening. Um, I worked with one, she was a pediatric oncology nurse. So she's dealing with very sick babies, having painful treatments and very frightened parents, right? It's not a fun it's not a fun specialty. And in her um, unit, there was no place for the nurses or the doctors to have privacy. There was no break room. And all they had was single lockers in a, in a, in a hallway that patients could get to. So there was literally no privacy, no space to take. And you had to go into the bathroom and lock yourself in. 
if you wanted any time to yourself. Or you'd have to go down the you know, elevator and then go outside and then you pass 15-minute break time. Do you know what I mean? It was just yeah. totally physically, humanly unlivable place to be. And they were expected to do this incredible, you know, huge heavy lifting of empathy work and emotion work. And she told, I said, well, who's, where's HR? Who's your manager? She said, well, I asked my manager for a break room and she said, suck it up, buttercup. Oh. I was like, okay, first of all, do you need to no. still work there? Because <laughs> that is one ugly, ugly workplace. Um, yeah. But I mean, that's the kind of things that I'll see where empathic burnout is going to happen here and you need to get yourself out. I'm sorry, but you need to get out. This is an extremely toxic environment. Um, but it's just interesting that in this, you know, high end, right, pediatric oncology ward, they didn't even have a single thought for the nurses and doctors needing a place to sit yeah, or a place to put their purses or their jackets or a place to have their lunch. There was nothing. There was no mechanism whatsoever for the human body and the human needs of these people. And that's not an unusual healthcare workplace, sadly. No. And not just healthcare. And I think, yeah, there's so many examples of that. I have a little hope that the conversation is changing around some of this as people are speaking up and as conversations through the pandemic and the great resignation are acknowledging this more. Are you hopeful about that too, Carla? I'm hoping so. But I think if if the workplace doesn't kind of get its like shake it off and get its head in the game and make sure that workplaces are healthy places for human bodies to be, most places aren't, then we're still going to have this problem. Um, and and I'm, I'm sad to see worker engagement become such a big thing. And the happy, happy workplace. You know, when there's problems in a workplace, so many places get a ping pong table or a gluten-free snack wagon, right? And that's their answer. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like, that's not what anybody needs. Or, you know, let's have a a worker appreciation party. I'm like, just give me the $40 that you were going to spend (laughs) on this yucky pizza for me. Just give me 40 bucks, okay? Um, Yeah, yeah, there's so much going on in the workplace for so many, well, centuries that it's a troubled place. But even so, we have examples of good, healthy workplaces, so that's nice. Yes, yes. And, you know, in your framework, you are turning this around. You know, you have a different way of looking at emotions in the the workplace, that they Mm -hmm. aren't the enemy, you describe them as vital aspects of thinking, acting, and working. And I want to spend a little bit of time going into some of your ideas around that, but just starting with the big picture, like when you go into an organization or a company and you're trying to change this environment, what's your big picture view of how things can get better? The first thing I do is listen to the emotions that are arising within the community. And that can tell me more than, you know, two years of regular consulting because emotions don't lie. So a lot of times I'll be brought in because there's some, there's some hassle going on. And 
like there's a, a one worker who's making everybody's lives miserable. And I've learned that this worker is almost always the identified patient, as they say in psychology, right? The people bring the child in. This child is, you know, this child is making our lives whatever. And it turns out the child is just living the trouble of the family. And, you know, they're doing the family a favor by sort of embodying all of it in one mm-hmm. little body. Um, so, so I will generally work with that person as an informant rather than as a problem. I was like, so tell me what's going on. What's the beef? What's, what is the situation here? And that troubled person can give me most of the information I need. And then I go around and talk to everybody else and start putting together a whole big picture of, you know, kind of a sociological view, an overview of what's going on in the community. And then the problems just show themselves. I mean, they're just like right there. The, the, you know, they've got like hats with neon on them. Hi, I'm the problem. <laughs> And then we work together as a community of intelligent, you know, people and peers, and we, we figure out the problems. A lot of it is physical. Can a human body live in this workplace in in a comfortable way? Generally, the answer is no. So we look at break rooms, we look at break times, we look at those thresholds between intense work and rest and that sort of thing. Um, We also look at, do you have reliable and known communication processes for the everyday hassles that people get into? For instance, does everyone know how to get the attention of someone who's very busy? That should be like the first thing you learn. And I've never learned it at any job. I've never. So you can get into hassles every day. If you're in a very busy workplace and you need to talk to a person, do we know what the difference is between a text, an email, and a phone call in terms of what is most important and when and why? No, people figure that out themselves, and a lot of times they figure it out wrong. And so mm. there's there's totally unnecessary um, hassles in the workplace based on people not having any functional communication process for dealing with everyday difficulties. And when we go up even further, do you have any process for telling someone you made a mistake and not be endangered by that, by telling? And do you have a process to point out the mistakes of others that is not endangering to you? Very few workplaces have both in place. So, Just everyday life is going to be difficult in workplaces that have no processes, no practices for normal human engagement. You know, they have a huge book on how to do this, that, and the other thing, right? All the the manuals. And there's nothing on how do I tell a person that they just put that in upside down, (laughs) you know, or whatever it is. (laughs) Who do I go to? Yeah. So you're creating systems where people can be open, where people can communicate, people can talk about problems, talk about mistakes in a non-punishing way, and where their emotions, and I think this is the philosophical difference between what you're talking about now versus the more toxic, problematic environment, right, is that Mm -hmm. emotions are treated as 
useful information mm-hmm. as emotions are treated as a source of useful information that can help yes. take a look at what's going on and that are actually valuable as opposed to these don't belong in the workplace. Leave it at home. Show up these here and be a professional. Robot. Yeah. Right. Yeah, professional. If you, you need yeah. to get more professional. Like, for instance, if there's a lot of anger in the workplace, anger is about boundaries. I know that boundaries are being crossed without permission every day in this workplace. That's what anger is about. So I find out, I look at boundaries. I look at thresholds. I look at the the rules and the communication if there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of jealousy and envy. Both of those, I call them the sociological emotions because they their job is to locate us and make us safe in the social world. So if there's a lot of jealousy and envy and a lot of toxic gossip happening, and you can have healthy gossip, um, then I know that there is inequality and injustice going on in that workplace every day. That mm. those emotions don't come up for no reason. Like, you know, um, if there's a lot of anxiety, which is the, this is the emotion that helps us plan ahead and get things done. Then I know that the workload is either too heavy or it's not being managed appropriately. So these emotions tell me, they're like whispering to me, hey, Carla, here's what's really going on. (laughs) The emotions tell me exactly what's going on in that social environment. And then we follow them to what's happening. And so we can get, we can get, we can dial down so quickly by listening to the emotions Mm -hmm. and treating them with respect. And you write about the four families of emotions. So you talked about anger, fear, and then there's also sadness and happiness in your book. Mm-hmm. And in your book, people who are interested in this should read it because you go into a, all of these in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, and in your view, every emotion has value. They're all mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can all, again, be, like you said, they can all be indicators. And I'm curious because I think mm-hmm. we're talking a lot about the the systemic level, right? changing the environment. What about the individual worker? Could you maybe use an example of one of those emotions? Like how might an individual worker, you know, going about their work week, use some of their own own emotional experience at work in a, in a skillful, emotionally intelligent kind of way? Mm -hmm. Um, With each of the emotions, I, one of the things I do when I go into a workplace is teach people a shared emotional vocabulary and a shared understanding of what emotions mean so that it's no longer a secret shame to have a human emotion. <laughs> so right. in workplaces where there's emotional awareness, if I am a worker and I'm suddenly feeling a tremendous amount of anxiety, I will know I'm not having a heart attack, but that I will ask myself the questions, what, what brought this feeling forward and what needs to be done? What, what needs to be organized? Do I have tasks that are coming up um, that I haven't finished? Do I have deadlines that are looming that I'm not going to meet? So I would know that anxiety did that. And then I could go to someone else and say, I'm having a lot of anxiety. I can't figure out what it's about. Or I'm having a lot of anxiety. Do you have any time to help me because I'm not going to hit my deadline? Or I, I can't hit my deadline. What can we do? Right, because anxiety is telling me something is wrong in the area of tasks and deadlines. And 
in most workplaces, I'm going to feel my anxiety. I don't know what it's called. I don't know what's happening. I could be having a panic attack. I could be having a heart attack. I don't know. Um, I'm overwhelmed. I can't tell anybody because I want to look cool. Right? There's no emotional openness. I can't go to my I can't go to my manager because she'll say, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can't go to my manager because not hitting my deadline is a failure. And so now I've got shame coming up, which is the emotion that tells you you're not living up to your ethics and morals. And so now I've got shame and anxiety. I don't know what to do with either of them. Right. And so I'm just going to get spiraling out. But if I had if if I had an emotionally well-regulated workplace, I could say, I am feeling ashamed because I'm not going to hit my deadline. Um, but I do need help. Right. I can just say I can say it out loud in, in a, in a workplace where people understand what that's about. Um, and just that, just being able to speak the emotions, just being able to work with them makes being with other people so much more comfortable because now you're not hiding most of your interior life from them and you're not hiding most of your cognitive abilities from them because emotions are a crucial part of cognition. There's, they're not separate from thoughts or rationality. They're, they're, they're completely linked. And so if we're continually in the workplace being told, none of those emotions, none of those emotions, like to just want your rationality. First of all, it doesn't even exist, but it tells us to silence a huge part of our humanity. And that's not comfortable. It's not going to work in mm. the long run. Yeah. This is such a great example because I think what it requires, first of all, is to have some awareness of your emotions, to be able to label it, and then do something more effective. You know, like you said, instead of spiraling out with it, it's like, okay, what do I need? Do I need to cut down on my workload? Do I need resources? Do I need help? Who can I come to with this? And I think there's such an important shift there versus just holding it in and thinking, what's wrong with me? Why can't I keep up? Which is often what I think people feel when they're overwhelmed and stressed. It's like, oh, I got to work harder. I got to, you know, really get this done. And wow, to be able to take a look at it in that way can make a huge difference. Yeah. And I think reframing is something that, you know, is so important to be able to do with almost anything. I, I was remembering my mom had chronic pain for many years and I developed some in my 40s. And she took me aside and she said, I want to tell you about chronic pain is it's we know that pain is a signal, but chronic pain is not a signal. It's something's going on. It's not telling you anything true. And that was so helpful for me because, you know, when you have pain, you're like, what happened to my arm? What's going on? Do I need to go see the doctor? Do you know what I mean? Pain is a signal that something's wrong. But with chronic pain, there's something it's like a neurological there's it's a misfire. And Mm -hmm. so you're getting all these pain signals that don't actually mean anything. And you could waste your entire life following chronic pain, right? You could waste your entire life. And so for her to tell me, it doesn't mean anything, right? Then I was able to just be with the pain and go, okay, that's pain. Instead of maybe my arm's broken. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So reframing the, the discomfort of chronic pain made it not suffering, right? And so reframing emotions as messages that are a part of your intelligence means that you are not going to feel like you're being ganged up on. 
by your own emotions. That's right. That's very yeah. much in line with, you know, acceptance-based psychotherapies like yeah. acceptance and commitment therapy, which the co-hosts of this podcast all practice because it, yeah. it's like having an acceptance of your emotions and an awareness of them mm-hmm. instead of treating them like the enemy. It, yeah. it transforms suffering. It's like, oh yeah, I'm anxious. Of course I'm anxious. I have this yeah. really high workload and a deadline and it's okay to feel anxious in this situation. Now, you know, what effective or values-based thing can I do in this moment? And it is a shift. I think you're right. It's like a reframe around how are you feeling about whatever emotion is showing up at work, anger, yeah. anxiety, sadness, yeah. et cetera. And to know they yeah. have messages. Each one has has a purpose and a message. And, it, you know, it, it and we have evolved to become successful social primates who you know, can work with each other and figure out how to live together appropriately and effectively. And that they're a part of our skill set rather than these damned emotions. (laughs) Right. They are there for a reason, right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So what about, you know, speaking of being social, social animals here, what if you have a coworker, maybe a colleague or someone that you look, work closely with, and you can really see that they are struggling emotionally. I don't mean, you know, I don't mean just like, oh, they're, they're depressed or something like that. I mean, more like, maybe they're a little emotionally difficult, like they're really irritable, or they are very guarded, like very hard to get to know or something Mm -hmm. like that. There's like some sort of emotional situation going on with one of your coworkers that's impacting you. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe your boss or something like that. What kind of advice would you offer someone in a situation like that? Well, I would say if someone is guarded or or angry, it means there's a boundary issue. So I would make sure to respect their boundaries. And I mean, it's different for every single person. Even twins who have boundary issues will require <laughs> different things. But I treat people who are are very angry, who are guarded, sort of like the way you treat animals in the forest that you just come upon them and you startle them. And you know that way that you just calm down your whole being? Like, I'm cool. I'm chill. You're not going to be murdered today. (laughs) Not by me anyway. Um, And, you know, just just present a, a peaceful place. And I don't mean fake it, but to know that the person is struggling. And a lot of times when people are angry, they are finding things of value that have been tromped across. So a lot of times angry people are the truth tellers. They're the ones who hold the truth in the, in the social structure. And so I will tend to sidle up to the angry people like Alice Roosevelt, who said, if you don't have anything nice to say, come sit by me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I might move into um, softer forms of anger, like sarcasm and humor, and just see, do they want to engage around this? Or do they really want to be left alone? Or what's going on? And then I would create... um, um, enough of a relationship so that we could talk about it and say, when you do this, it feels to me that you are angry with me and I just want to check with you, right? Instead of assuming that I know mm. the emotions of another person, because um, we don't know 
we don't know yeah. how or why they got there. We can make up stories in our own minds, but I saw a study that talked about perspective taking. Perspective taking is a part of empathy. And there was a study done by law of, on long-term couples. And they asked them 20 very simple questions like, where would your partner want to go to uh, a vacation? You know, Aruba or Detroit, you know, whatever, right? <laughs> and these long-term partners were asked at the end, how many do you think you got right? And they're like, oh, probably 13 out of 20, probably 13. And mostly they got seven, which is not even guessing. Like you would get 10 if you were guessing, but they just <laughs> they're worse didn't than even know chance. each other. Yeah they, yeah, they had an idea that they knew each other, but they didn't know each other. They assumed they knew each other. And so they talked about perspective taking should really be called perspective getting. Mm. Because until you ask and get the answer, you don't really know. And, you know, like I frown when I'm thinking and I've had to grow bangs because people <laughs> think I'm angry with them. And I was like, no, I'm just thinking. They're like, no, you're angry. I'm like, you don't. Okay, now I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we think we can read each other and we think we know each other and we're not very good at it. Well, yeah. And there's that tendency to take it personally. And if I think a coworker. Yeah who's, you know, disgruntled or a little distant is such a good example of a situation where you're likely to assume it's you or to fret about yeah. it all the time. It can really yeah. be difficult, but you don't really know what's yeah. going on for that person. That's absolutely true, right? You, can, you don't know. One of the things I have yeah. when I have people do their draining versus nourishing emotion work, you know, I have people actually fill out a, a questionnaire, an inventory, and I ask them about home. Like, do you know that the person coming into your office has a, a store of emotional and empathic labor in them? Or did they just give it all at home? Are they arriving drained? Right. And so what looks like crankiness might just be exhaustion. And you know how sometimes when you're just exhausted, you just got to be angry and get through it. Like, I'm just going to freaking finish this you know what I mean yeah, it kind of like, charges you up right yeah you, kind of, you just yeah. you need your anger and it could be that they're taking care of a dying parent and they don't want to talk about it they just don't yeah. want to talk about it yeah okay well you know final question here um you know we've we've touched on this a little bit throughout the interview but I think this might actually be the most important thing about the work that you're doing and about conversations like this you know we've talked about what a healthy workplace environment looks like and some of the features and I was actually really intrigued in your book so I'm glad you've raised it a little bit about this idea of physical I think you call them repair stations mm -hmm. where people can go rest that seems really important could you speak a little bit more about that and some of the other things that can just really help people have a more supportive and nurturing environment during those hours at work, whether they're working from home or in an actual, you know, workplace setting. What are some of the key pieces of that? Yeah, the, the term repair stations comes from the sociologist Irving Goffman, and he, he's talking about a backstage place where you can drop everything and just be your own kind of home self rather than this workplace self. You know, like now that we've been home, 
a lot of the resignation, the great resignation was because people had a chance to be home on mm. Zoom doing their work. And they're like, I am never going back to the office again. I won't. It's just a miserable place to be. And they didn't People know. get tired of code switching between home and work, yes. right? Like having yes. to turn it off, turn it on. Yeah. yeah. And just to be able to sit in your own chair or go lay down on your own bed for five minutes during the work day is like, it's a dream. But mm. a repair station is any place where you can let go. And a repair station can be a relationship. It can be an actual break room. It can be a walk. Any place where you can get back to yourself. And that's why it's so important to have those thresholds between difficult clients or difficult interactions. Because you need to be able to get back to yourself, shake it off, and then go with a you know sort of refreshment. And then hopefully your managers will notice we need a lot of repair stations. This must be a pretty intense workplace. So what can we do to reduce the need for these repair stations? What do we, how can we manage this? Why are so many people going to the bathroom three or four times an hour? I mean, it could be the bathroom has become their repair station where they just mm. get some quiet time. And I think I put in the book, there's this horrifying thing where a company is making tilted toilets so that you can't sit on them comfortably for the workplace because people have noticed that people are spending time in the bathroom to try to get a break. And so instead of like addressing the human suffering, they're it's making so toilets that will throw you off. Oh, that is so sad. That's oh, like, dear. there's the workplace for you. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think... You know, it, like have a five-year-old come into your workplace and say, does this look comfortable to you? Mm -hmm. A five-year-old would go, no, this is terrible. This is the worst kindergarten room I've ever seen. There's no place to take a nap, no place to paint. You know, like there's no place to yeah. be a person. Yeah. You're just a cog in a machine. Yeah. And are there any other, if you were going to name like maybe your top two or three other considerations that would be so important to make a really healthy and sustainable environment for the humans that are working for you? I think a, an open and honest place where people can come and say, I screwed up. Just like it could be the, and you could put it in ruder language. Okay. But like, to have maybe the screw up board where people could write, I did this or a place mm -hmm. where people can go to say, I made a mistake today and not have it be the secret of all secrets that, that starts to fester inside people um, that it's okay to make mistakes. We all fail. Uh, failing is a part of success. Um, the other is to have certainly have people share an emotional vocabulary, but also to have figured out what the daily beefs are between people like people not knowing how to interrupt a busy person and causing continual you know trouble is to make that an actual process to talk to people mm -hmm. and say if you're busy how do you want to be how do we do this in this workplace especially if they're in an open office which I call the devil's floor plan where you don't have any privacy and you're hearing voices all the time. And if someone interrupts you, boom, you're off your, you know, you can't focus. You can't get back mm -hmm. to your focus. So finding any places, any like human places where the, the, the conflicts happen 
and just taking them one at a time and seeing how can we, what do we need to do as a community? How would this work? Try the first thing you think of. If it doesn't work, go to empathic design, go back and say, this didn't work. Let's keep going. A lot of people will try thing once. It won't work. And they'll be like, well, see, we tried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just give up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. The once isn't going to probably cut it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Especially if it's a long ranging problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Everyone's going to have an idea about how it's going to work and you'll try it and we'll all go. Then we'll go over to the screw up board and say, okay, we screwed up that one. Right. <laughs> now let's go back. What would actually work? Cause that didn't yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the work you're doing, I think, to make workplace environments more supportive and humane. Yeah. Um, if listeners want to learn more about your work in your book, The Power of Emotions at Work, Accessing the Vital Intelligence in Your Workplace is terrific. Where else can listeners go to learn more about what you have to offer? They can come to my website, CarlaMcLaren.com, or I also have an online learning site called EmpathyAcademy.org. So people can take classes every month. Yeah. And I was looking at your resources and you have so many different things that you're offering for people. It's incredible. It's such a resource. So much. much. (laughs) You must be a very busy, hardworking person, Carla. I'm a very busy person. I need to like lay down every now and then and just get a repair station up in here. That's right. I hope you have one. I hope you have one. And I do appreciate your time since you are such a busy person coming on the (laughs) podcast today. So, and sharing your wisdom and just giving people a new framework for thinking about emotions at work. So thank you so much, Carla. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. If you love to nerd out about books that offer wisdom on living well, join our psychologist off the clock book club. We meet the second Thursday of each month at noon Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. In addition to the monthly book club meetings, you'll get a newsletter with tips, have the chance to meet some of our authors in person, and you'll get to vote on upcoming books that we'll discuss. To join, all you need to do is email us at offtheclockpsych at gmail.com with book club in the subject line, or you can link to us through the offers and events page at offtheclockpsych.com. We hope you join us for some book love and fun. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media and purchase swag from our merch store by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.